Thanks for joining me. This is Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. There's a book I have called Am I Just My Brain by Sharon Dirks, and I want to spend some time with that. In fact, I'm going to come back to it obviously more than once because it's got so many important things that it's talking about. Um, let me tell you something really uh, briefly about her because this is the first time I've done this particular book in a podcast. She's got a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge. She's uh, had a decade, over a decade of experience in fMRI, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, she's held positions in the United Kingdom and the U.S. She's uh, conducted research into human cocaine addiction. She's written other books. She uh, speaks, she lectures, she's been on BBC. And uh, so she's got a tremendous background. And people have really been commenting positively on the book. Uh, you, you know John Lennox, pretty well known in the Christian apologetics world. He said, this book is for the open-minded and will enrich the reader. Whatever their worldview, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Then there's Oz Guinness. I really like Oz Guinness. He says this. Uh, he calls the book fresh and clear and helpful. And he said, uh, it's dealing with the most important conversation of our time. Is freedom only a fiction? Is human dignity merely a form of speciesism? Are we no more than our brains? The answers to such questions, Guinness says, affect us all, and it's vital that we all explore them. So, again, it's called, Am I Just My Brain? And I've done a talk on this, the idea of, uh, do we have a mind or do we just have a brain? So I wanted to look at just a portion of the book here. There's a lot to it, but I'm just going to take a little part that I think is interesting. She said, um, if you ask philosophers, what's the nature of consciousness? I mean, that's a huge question. What is consciousness? You get books titled The Problem of Consciousness, and people wrestle with it. And she said, uh, there is no agreed theory, but... There are two views, she says, get a regular hearing among people that are what she calls reductive physicalists. Now, that's a mouthful, but that just means that many people believe the mind can be reduced to just physics and chemistry alone. There's nothing outside of that. There's nothing spiritual. There's no soulish element to it, that just the mind is just a bunch of neurons firing. So she said that there are two views among these people. One is that brain science can access consciousness and explain it entirely. Okay, so we'll come back to that one in just a minute. She says the other view, again, these are by people who don't buy into the existence of a soul. Another is that consciousness is just illusory. It's, there's nothing to it at all. And she says both of these views believe that consciousness is brain activity. Just put an equal sign there. Consciousness equals brain activity. Consciousness is the brain. So she starts on that first view. She said, can scientific methods access and explain consciousness? She said there was a magazine uh, called New Scientist. that came out a few years ago. It had a cover titled The Metaphysics Issue, How Science Answers Philosophy's Deepest Questions. She said, actually, sciences, uh, scientists are not coming up with easy conclusions to this. She said they're at an impasse trying to figure out consciousness itself. She said, yeah, you can use that fMRI. That she, that's her background. She said you can see and you can measure brain activity when various thoughts happen. But she said that's not seeing the actual thoughts of somebody. How can a scientist access somebody else's inner life? 
Exactly. Here's the question, huh? How can a scientist access somebody else's inner life? So she gives examples. And she does this all through the book. This is a very, very powerful book. It's important, uh, but it's actually easy to read. She gives you some really good examples. So she says, let's suppose you got a friend who comes back from some kind of rock concert, just raving to you about it. Oh, the lights, oh, the, the warm-up, the atmosphere, the crowds, all those songs. And you go, wow, that sounds interesting. You read reviews on it. So you read those reviews and you realize, well, yeah, they have a lot of details too, but it's not the same thing as if you were there and experienced it yourself. You'd have to really understand that. And she says, when scientists study consciousness, that's kind of the same approach. They can look at it as an observer, kind of like reading reviews, but consciousness is an experience. It's an experience. The scientific method gives you a third-person observation, but conscious experience is first-person. So it's the first-person versus third-person business. She says, if uh, you can find out what's going on in somebody's brain, you can measure chemicals and you can record their MRIs, but she said you can't measure what's in their mind. To find out what's in their mind, you have to ask the person. So it's private compared to the public. She said um, there, there's an easy and a hard part to this problem of consciousness. The easy problems are concerned with trying to explain some of the correlations that go on between consciousness experience and brain activity. So you can see, for example, when you're waking up, uh, you can see what happens in the consciousness areas of the brain. Um, so that, by the way, the easy problems are not very easy. But it says compared with the hard problems, they're trivial. The hard problems try to account for conscious experience. How do you get from brain cells firing to what it's like to be you? So here's a wonderful example again. She says, suppose there's this, uh, this is just a thought experiment, a thought example. So Mary is a scientist. She has a great knowledge of the physics and chemistry of human vision. She knows how the eye works. She knows how the cornea focuses the light onto the retina. She knows all about how the retina has rods and cones in it that produce all this um, uh, color vision and monochromatic vision. She knows how it generates an electric signal that goes to the brain through the nerve and it gets converted to an image. But is that knowledge enough to understand what it's like to see? So... Continue the experiment, the thought experiment. So let's say Mary is born blind. And so she spends her whole life understanding how the eye works, but she doesn't have the ability to see. But one day, this is the way the thought experiment goes, she miraculously gains the ability to see. So here's the question. When she receives her sight, does she learn anything new about vision? Well, it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? The answer is yes. So physical effects alone don't explain the first-person experience. Uh, Thomas Nagel, and I'm adding my own thoughts here, but Thomas Nagel talked about uh, persons, let's say a person has studied the bat, and they know how the echo uh, location works, and they know everything about the bat, but nobody knows what it's like to be a bat. Those are two different things. That's what she's getting across here. Physical facts alone don't explain the first-person experience. I mean, you can understand the eye, the rods, the cones, the corneas. You can understand all of that stuff. But does that give anybody the idea of what it's really like to see? Yeah. Okay, so she said consciousness isn't synonymous with brain activity. And uh, she spends some time talking about how the brain works, how the mind works, and the fact that 
in many cases, uh, the mind can bring changes to the brain. The brain can make changes to the mind too. So it says there are lanes that go two different directions from the brain to the mind and the mind to the brain. So it shows the power of the mind over the body and the brain that suggests the brain isn't driving everything. And they talk about, uh, she talks about some neurologists who have studied physical illness and how patients sometimes will have dramatic symptoms but no physical cause. There, there may be an emotional cause. Those are called psychosomatic disorders. In fact, the World Health Organization did an investigation into these kinds of illnesses and they found that it affects roughly one out of five patients worldwide. So this idea that you are your brain, no, no. That doesn't explain this kind of illness. There's more to us than our brains. The mind is powerful in its effect on the body. So there was the first thing that uh, people who are not, um, who don't believe in the soul or the mind, uh, the, the reductive physicalists. So remember, one way that they talk about the conscious, what consciousness is, is that brain science can explain the whole thing. Well, no, it can't. Remember, the, the second way that they're going to try to deal with consciousness is to wave their hands and say it's just an illusion. So it doesn't exist at all. So there's another person that does another view that says, um, well, how do you deal with consciousness? Well, don't worry about it. There's not there at all. And one good example is Daniel Dennett. He holds that if consciousness is physical, the perception of it is just a collection of tricks in the brain. In fact, he's got a book, Consciousness Explained, and that's exactly what he believes. He says consciousness is a physical, biological phenomenon. He says we don't really understand it, but it's not miraculous. So there's nothing to it. There's no first-person experience. Consciousness doesn't exist. There's just neurons that fire and brain chemistry. But she says, well, wait a minute. If that's true, how do we know it isn't true of every thought that we have, including the notion that consciousness is illusory? In other words, Daniel Dennett has his neurons firing and has his brain chemistry going, and it's coming up with one conclusion. Why does he think that's more true than somebody else who's got neurons firing and comes up with a different conclusion? And she says, you know, this idea of an illusion presupposes consciousness. Right? Think about it. An illusion occurs when an experience is misinterpreted or perceived wrongly. In other words, who's having the illusion? You still have to have a mind behind the illusion. Isn't that interesting? So, in what sense can you have an I if there's no first-person experience? Somebody once said this, why should we all be victims of an illusion instead of seeing things the way they really are? What sort of illusion is it anyway? Why is it like that, not like some other way? Can we see through the illusion? It says uh, Dennett's view undermines itself. It undermines the whole idea of rational thought. How do we know these uh, the neurons firing now are not distorting his perspective? He assumes he's outside of the concepts that he's trying to explain, but his argument can't be trusted. Ouch, that's pretty powerful. So, it says there are reasons to discount the view that the consciousness is the brain. She spends time on, in philosophy and neuroscience and medicine. So, then she covers in other chapters, are we more than machines? Let me just give you a couple of her chapter headings here. Am I really just my brain? Is belief in the soul out of date? Are we more than machines? Is free will an illusion? Now, think about this. If there's no mind, if there's no soul, if we're just neurons firing, there's no free will. 
It's just an illusion. So she's going to spend a chapter on that. I want to come back to that because that's going to be important. Here's another chapter. Are we hardwired to believe? Is religious experience just brain activity? Why can I think? Is one of hers, uh, one of her chapters here. So excellent book. Very, very short. Uh, Let's see. I don't know, 120 pages maybe, 130 pages. And plenty of notes in the back. And it's pretty recent. So she's been doing some, yeah, 2019. So it's up-to-date research and all. Wonderful book called uh, Am I Just My Brain? And I think you get something out of it because this is an issue that's uh, out there in the public. Well, thanks, and we'll do another podcast soon.